Let's do it. And now, shining the spotlight on the future of hockey, Major Junior. Hey, Connor McDavid of the Erie Otters. Matt Barzell of Seattle Thunderbirds. I'm Jonathan Yerudo from the St. John's Sea Dogs. I'm Braden Holpe for the Saskatoon Blades. This is Gabriel Landeskog. I'm playing for the Kitchen Rangers. Hi, this is Sean Couturier from the Drummondville Voltager. Carter Hart of the Everett Silvertips. This is Taylor Hall of the Windsor Spitfire. Nathan McKinnon from the Halifax Mooseheads. NCAA. Hey, this is Jack Eichel. I play at Boston University. It's Alex Turcotte. Hey, it's Kale McCarver. Hey, this is Jack Drury. Hey, it's Kyle Connor. Hi, this is Ian Mitchell of the Denver University Pioneers. It's Morgan Barron from Cornell University. Quinn Hughes from the University of Michigan. Hello, this is uh, Jerry York, the coach at Boston College. The World Juniors. My name is Andres Fischko from uh, Team Russia. Hey, it's Joel Ferby from Team USA. It's Norris Sider from Germany. I'm Philip Broberg of the Team Sweden. It's Ellie Paul Lennon. Hey, it's Nikolai Ehlers. It's Matt Sogard. Hi, it's Timo Meyer. Hi, this is Jordan Edwards of Team Canada. The NHL Draft. This is Alexis Lafreniere of the Rimouski Oceanic. Hi, it's Gordon Bicep from the Sudbury Wolves. Connor Derry from the Camelot Blazers. I'm Alexander Holtz. I'm Lucas Freeman. Cole Perfetti of the Saginaw Spirit. Dylan Holler from the Wisconsin Badgers. Hey, it's Jake Sanson. I play for Team USA. Brady Schneider, Caden Dooley. Here's Marco Rossi. I'm from the other sound. And more. Excellent! This is the Pipeline Show. Happy weekend, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. We usually start with the question of the day. I'm going to push that to a little bit later in this opening segment because it ties into one of the news and notes items that I'll uh, that I'll get to here in a second. First off, thanks for uh, downloading this week's episode. If you're a newcomer to the show, then welcome aboard, and I hope you'll be back for more. And if you are back for more as a returning listener, then thank you for your continued support. Speaking of which, flurry of activity at the, on the Patreon page with more and more people signing up to be patrons. That uh, is greatly appreciated. A lot of people picking the $2 early access tier, which allows you to hear uh, all the interviews that you hear on an entire full episode. You get to hear those as a patron, usually about an hour or so after the interview is done. Earlier this week, I had a couple of interviews, and it wasn't until the next day for those ones, but it's still three or four days before this uh, full episode has uh, come out this weekend. So I appreciate everyone who has signed up to be a patron. And if you haven't yet, but you value the show, then I encourage you to look into it and see if it's uh, a fit for you. Patreon.com slash The Pipeline Show. Lots of news and notes to get to. So let's get to it. The Quebec Major Junior Hockey League opened the regular season this weekend. Uh, As I'm speaking with you right now, it's Saturday morning. So Friday night action in the queue saw Halifax, Victoriaville, the BB Armada, Shakutimi, Drummondville, Charlottetown, Bathurst, and Gatineau uh, picking up wins on opening night. Valdor and St. John both lost in extra time. The uh, losers on opening night were Roy Noranda, Moncton, Sherbrooke, Shawinigan, Cape Breton, and Ramouski. Quebec and Baycomo did not play on opening night. Of note, a lot of people will be watching Shakutami, especially early on here. And uh, Hendricks Lapierre with four points, two goals and two assists. Dawson Mercer with a couple of goals in that game as well. And for Bathurst, Cole Huckins had a four-point debut as well. Six foot three, two hundred pound centerman, who is Bathurst's first-round pick in the 2019 draft in the queue, draft eligible in 2021. Also out of the uh, queue this week, this past week, the league 
received $20 million from the uh, Quebec government. Now, that's just to help out the 12 teams based in Quebec. The Maritime teams are not uh, subject to that that grant, and the grant is to help the teams uh, in Quebec uh, get through the pandemic. Now, the teams on the coast are allowed to have, at least uh, so far, some fans in attendance. I think it's 20 or 25% of capacity. So they're able to bring in a little bit of money. The 12 teams in Quebec definitely not allowed to have fans as the cases of COVID-19 have uh, dramatically increased in both Quebec and Ontario. We'll get to Ontario here in a second. But the $20 million grant was a contingent on the league taking further steps to get rid of fighting at the junior level. This was voted on by the uh, Q Board of Governors and uh, earlier, and they said, nope, no thanks. Uh, but they have uh, changed their mind, and uh, that is now in place. So now you get in a fight, and there's a, it's not just five minutes, it's five and a ten. And after three fights, a player will uh, get a one-game suspension, which to me, that seems like a, a pretty solid job by the uh, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League to uh, get $20 million for taking steps to eliminating something that is well on its way out anyway in fighting. Um, and I've said many times on this show that I don't think there needs to be fighting in junior hockey, but it has declined so much over the last uh, couple of decades that t- to me that's like uh, if somebody said they would only give me $20 million that I asked for if I stopped using CDs to listen to music, uh, I think I would be okay with that. I-, I do have a CD player in my car. However, to get the $20 million that I really, really need, I guess I would be willing to forego using that uh, CD player. Uh, from now on. So we'll see how long the queue is able to operate uh, as is without having any problems. A little concerned with what's happening in Quebec, definitely, uh, in terms of the pandemic. In the Maritimes, their bubble has seemingly worked really well for the most part. Uh, so less concern uh, for those teams uh, playing on the um, on the East Coast. Speaking of the OHL, and this is where the question of the week ties in, there are uh, reports Rick Westhead from TSN uh, with the Initial story where I saw it, that the Ontario government has said uh, the OHL may have to do without uh, fighting, uh, may also have to do without body contact if they hope to play this year because of how much cases in Ontario have uh, skyrocketed here over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, And in Rick's uh, threads on the subject, uh, quoting a government official and a couple of doctors, it doesn't paint a pretty positive picture for the OHL and their chances of starting here in uh, the next little while with exhibition games and then the regular season on December 1st. Certainly not without fans, as Ontario has just uh, banned uh, meetings of even 10 people. I I don't think you're able to gather anymore in Ontario. I could be wrong on that. Correct me if I am. Uh, But one of the doctors that uh, Rick West had quoted, Isaac Bogosh, says it's pretty clear when the chief public health officer of your city says, cancel all gatherings and what that means. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean run a hockey league. So, that may have been in uh, specifically considering uh, minor hockey in uh, Ontario, but uh, the OHL is going to have some issues there. So the question of the of the week that I put on Twitter was in response to that: is let's say that is the the contingency for the o- for the Ontario government to sign off on the OHL playing this year is that there's no fighting and there's no hitting in the OHL this season. Would you want them to go ahead and play a season with? with those kind of stipulations or would you say you know what there's just there's too much risk and that many changes to the game isn't the game 
and this is a developmental league, and you can't take hitting out of major junior hockey because then those players aren't developing properly for the next level where there is hitting. It would be like junior or college uh, football playing two-hand touch and then expecting those players to uh, step into the NFL and, and, and have success that way. At least that's how I see it. Now, the fighting aspect of it, again, like I said with the Q, fighting has uh, been dropping, dropping, dropping significantly over the last number of years uh, across major junior hockey, I would suggest across hockey in general. So if it was just fighting, if there's no fighting allowed, and that allows you to play your season, then yes, I won't rent any more DVDs at the local video store. I'll find another way to watch movies. WHL news this past week, uh, a couple of teams, the community-owned teams, announced the losses for the last season. That would be the Swift Current Broncos, who lost just shy of $800,000 over the past year. And the other club was the Moose Jaw Warriors. They reported losses of just under $400,000. And as uh, Greg Drennan reports, that means uh, over the last two years, the Warriors have lost $556,000 and change. Part of the expenses for both clubs was uh, their contribution to the $30 million class action lawsuit, which each team is uh, apparently paying uh, just over $180,000 for their portion. And it really just points out how significant the gate is for the WHL, major junior in general, but for the WHL especially because expenses are higher in the WHL because of travel. Uh, The uh, dub also has two other community-based teams that would be Lethbridge and Prince Albert. Those two teams will announce their profit or losses for this past season in upcoming uh, town meetings. I think Lethbridge is scheduled for November, and um, Prince Albert is actually coming up here next week, I believe. Now, both of those teams were really good this past year, whereas Moose John Swift Current were two of the cellar dwellers in the Eastern Conference, so you can tell fan support would be much different for PA and Lethbridge than it was in Moose Jaw and Swift Current uh, because the quality of the teams were different. So we'll see if uh, PA and Lethbridge lost money or if they made some money. Uh, but that is real significant uh, dollar losses for both of those teams. So, you know, when you hear all these people uh, arguing that uh, CHL owners are, are super wealthy and, uh, you know, they can afford to pay extra for minimum wage and all of those types of things, uh, that's not always the case. Anyway, lastly, uh, the Alberta Junior Hockey League has announced that they are going to start exhibition play on October 9th, so next week. They're going to play in a two-team cohort, so basically two teams are just going to keep playing against each other. This is just for exhibition. No announcement yet about regular season action, uh, but Drumheller and Camrose will uh, play each other. Brooks and Okotoks, the Calgary Canucks and the Olds Grizzlies, Spruce Grove and Drayton Valley, Grand Prairie and White Court, Sherwood Park and Lloyd, and the uh, Bonneville Pontiacs, and the Fort Mac Oil Barons. Uh, those uh, will be the combinations. So those teams will at least get to play. No mention here of the uh, Canmore Eagles. 15 teams, so seven pairings with uh, Canmore on the outside. Uh, next year will be 16 teams when uh, the Blackfalls team joins the league. That would be the Blackfalls Bulldogs just north of Red Deer. That was lots of news and notes. Let's get to what's coming down the pipe this week. And, of course, all my guests join me courtesy the Troubled Monk Hotline. If you are in Edmonton, Calgary, St. Albert, Sherwood Park, or right there in Red Deer, you can get same-day home delivery. Absolutely zero cost for that delivery. All you got to do is uh, go to troubledmonk.com, 
put your order in before 1 p.m. that day, and you'll you'll get your delivery later on the same day. If you order at 1.30 or 2.30 or 3.30, then it's going to come to you the next day. And how do you get that uh, no cost for the delivery, whether you're buying a six-pack or you're buying four flats of beer and a bottle of adequate vodka with some gin or troubled tea on the side? As long as you use the promo code PIPELINE, there will be no charge for your delivery. So do that today, or by the time this is coming out, it won't be one, uh, it'll be after one o'clock. So do it uh, the day you're listening to this, and you'll get it the next day if it's after one o'clock. I have three guests for you this week uh, here on the Pipeline Show. We're going to start with Patrick McNeil. He is the voice of the Cape Breton Eagles out of the uh, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League with the uh, season kicking off this weekend. Wanted to chat with him in the days leading up to the regular season and uh, gives a a pretty good rundown of what to expect this year and some of the changes around the queue. Then we'll have an NCAA campus report with a longtime voice of the Michigan Tech Huskies. His name is is Dirk Hembroff, and uh, that is a request by a patron who sent that to me uh, on Patreon and uh, enjoyed that conversation a lot. I think you will as well. And then a really big uh, conversation at the end of the show with the NHL draft, just days away now, finally we can say that, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday for the NHL draft. Ross McLean, a longtime scout, is going to join me. And uh, what we're going to do with Ross is uh, it's a fun segment for sure. It's a lengthy one, like 45 minutes. Uh, but I'm throwing a couple head-to-head battles, uh, two or three players. I throw them at Ross, and he says which of those three he would pick. And we do that. There must be, I don't know, ten combinations, maybe a dozen. Uh, but some really high-end players involved in that conversation, which makes it a lot of fun. Uh, so we'll end this show with that conversation with Ross McLean. Before we kick things off, uh, direct you to ProStockHockey.com. You can follow them on Twitter at ProStockHockey, and uh, they just picked up some gear from the Washington Capitals, new gloves, pants, and visors. Now in uh, in stock for Pro Stock Hockey. They also recently got sticks from the Arizona Coyotes. So check that out at ProStockHockey.com. All right, let's kick off this week's episode. Patrick McNeil, voice of the Cape Breton Eagles, gets you set for the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League regular season next here on the Pipeline Show. Red. Still with the box. Fires across and they score! Pierre-Luc Dubois on the one-timer. Wires it past Bo Taylor. Hey, it's Pierre-Luc Dubois from the Cape Breton Screen Eagles, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. There's a lot of people with disabilities that can't just go and find a job. So we set out to create a business to fill those needs, one stick at a time. The Store Next Door gift shop is a Yarmouth-based manufacturer and retail outlet store. So we make great ideas that any of our employees come up with, and we reuse and recycle as much as possible. Our most popular item is probably our hockey furniture. We take broken hockey sticks and turn them into different products. We go through a lot of hockey sticks. A lot. A whole lot. Considering that it's only been a year and we're shipping internationally, I think that that's been a huge success. Most people's reactions are, wow, you do this here. We don't accept can't here. Everyone here learns in different ways, but we want to give everybody every opportunity to find exactly what works for them. 
There's nothing better than when a customer buys something and then one of our employees say, I made that. They have meaningful lives and build things they can be proud of and get a paycheck for it. I'm Amy Acker and we change lives one job at a time. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Oh my. This is the Pipeline Show with Key Flaming, and let's uh, get to a CHL Insider segment. And, of course, uh, that means we're going to be talking about the Canadian Hockey League and really only one league to talk about these days. That's the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League regular season right around the corner. Patrick McNeil, the longtime voice of the Cape Breton Eagles. Welcome to the Pipeline Show. Uh, welcome back, Patrick. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. And it's nice to hear you say a long time voice because the first time I would have been on the show wouldn't have been such a long time. So I feel like I've come a long way. All the players have turned over since I took over. That's right. Uh, how many years has it been now? Uh, it would have been November of 2013. So it'll be seven years, uh, I guess, this fall. Man, it goes quick, eh? Doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Saw a lot of good players and was really reminded of that when we saw what Pierre-Luc Dubois did this year in the playoffs for Columbus. That's right. Uh, all right. Well, Patrick, let's get to uh, what's happening in the queue. Of course, we've had preseason games for the last few weeks uh, and the regular season coming right up here uh, quickly. First, let's let's talk about how things have gone. Uh, everything is uh, it seems like it's been pretty good. Everybody's safe and no problems so far that you're aware of. Yeah, it's been different depending on where you are in the league because in the Maritimes, we're getting ready to actually have a limited amount of fans, whereas in Quebec, there's no fans. Yeah. There's a, a bit of haggling over how much government support they're going to get. But in the Maritimes, we even saw some fans towards the end of the preseason. It was interesting. There was probably more emphasis on covering the preseason than ever before because of the limited number of fans. So I actually ended up doing play-by-play for three games on YouTube, which was a different experience. So that was kind of fun. But no, it didn't seem to be any issues. The biggest tick-up perhaps was when the province of Quebec had a rule that you couldn't have affiliate players because of the way that bubbles work. Hmm. And uh, one of the teams, I can't remember who it was, but they had a couple of injuries and they actually had to cancel one of their exhibition games, not because of COVID, but because they weren't able to call up players just because of the rules that were in place. But uh, thankfully that's uh, since been pulled back. Obviously the caseload in Quebec is getting a little bit troublesome uh, the last couple of days. And there's, you know, restrictions on certain zones in the province where blame the Wabrion and Quebec play, but thus far, it doesn't look like it's going to hinder anything in terms of the season getting underway or what we saw in the preseason either. Just for the listeners who don't know everything that's happening uh, politically and stuff, when you talk about the bubbles, uh, the, the league has kind of been split up into three chunks, right? And you're going to play within those individual uh, six-team conferences, kind of? Yeah, exactly right. So the Q used to have three divisions of six because it was an even format. But because of the way some of the natural geographical rivalries work, the Quebec teams argued for a unique format where the Maritimes stayed as a six-team division, and then the Quebec teams were split up into three four-team divisions. Well, because of COVID-19 and having to run a reduced schedule, they had to go back to the three-six division, a uh, three-team six-division format, which is fine for us in the Maritimes because we're very much isolated from the rest of the league anyway. Aside from Bathurst being three hours from Ramouski, none of the Maritime teams are really close to any of the Quebec-based teams, mm-hmm. and we had only played the Quebec-based teams twice. Uh, prior to this change. So now what you're seeing is instead of a 68-game schedule where you play the bulk of your games in division and play everyone at least twice, it's a 60-game schedule where you play the other five teams 12 times, six at home, six away, starts uh, this Friday and uh, winds up in early April. So it's a bit tough, I think, probably especially for some of the Quebec fans that are used to seeing some of the teams that are you know in close proximity to them, but it's the best that the league can do given the circumstances. So what's the mood of the uh, the fan right now? Are they... You know, I guess 
the fans right there in the Maritimes, are they, all right, let's get going. We're ready to go, and we seem to have things under control. I know in other parts of the country, probably everybody is looking and wondering uh, how uh, successful it's going to be. But for fans there, are they confident everything can be handled without a problem? I think so. It's funny. I was talking to Les Lazarek earlier today, and we were talking about how the QMJHL was going to be almost an unintentional guinea pig. So really, right now, you're looking at, it's five sets of fans that know for certainty what's going to happen because in the queue you have 18 teams, 12 of them are in Quebec where there's no fans permitted, and then six in the Maritimes. Well, Charlottetown doesn't have their rink yet, or they just moved into their rink because it was being used for COVID testing, so they're still trying to figure out what's going on with the numbers. But the big thing is there's a lot of logistics issues that fans are worried about locally that you might not be hearing about if you're far away because – if you're in Alberta and you're looking at the queue, like, oh, the queue's starting. That's so great. But here the fans locally are worried about what their tickets are going to look like because of the way that the maps and the arena has to be redrawn. Right. So you can have season tickets, but it doesn't necessarily mean you get to go to the games this year because of the way they have to redraw things. So for the fans that actually go to the games, that's a kind of a concern. You know, some fans get lucky that their seating is going to be pretty similar and every team is handling it differently. Like in Cape Breton, for example, their season ticket holders, some have their tickets, some don't. I know Halifax, I think, was selling half season tickets as a different way to try to accommodate people. So I think that's first and foremost what's on the mind of people. And, of course, people are really curious about what streaming is going to look like because there's more people that are going to be reliant on watching games online than ever before. But there's definitely excitement for the fact hockey's starting and people are pretty aware of the fact that there's envy envy from outside the region that's for sure well and i'm glad you brought up the streaming because uh as far as my understanding was that all three leagues were going to move away from new lion now did that just kind of because of what's happening right now with the with the pandemic and all that that maybe it was better just to go back with uh what you know than uh try to find a new source of uh of streaming content or a provider like that I'd heard that theory. The other thing that has been reported in the media in Quebec is that Quebec or media and Rogers TV have existing agreements that are tied into the agreement with new line that prevented the QMJHL from jumping ship. Uh, so for those uh, that are outside uh, of the region that may not know, Quebec or media is tied in with TVA, the, which is a national network, of course, and TVA sports is a big uh, broadcaster of QMJHL games. And Rogers Television televises the three New Brunswick-based teams. Hmm. And when there's a web, when you buy a webcast of a game that is on one of those networks, you get that network feed as opposed to the standard webcast. Okay. So that may have had something to do with it. So as a result, New Line is back for another year. However, Gilles Corteau has been pulling no punches in some of the interviews he's done, and he was quick to point out that a lot of the issues that he thought there were with webcasts weren't because of New Line. And what's interesting, and this is just me kind of spitballing, is I think because there's going to be more empty space in the arenas this year because fans can't fill every seat, right. it may give a camera, may give the television networks a bit more room to operate or new line more room to operate as term in terms of where they place cameras. I know in Cape Breton there was a lot of people that weren't really fond of what our webcasts looked like last year, but they watched the exhibition games on YouTube and they said, oh, those look great. And I was happy to tell them, well, yeah, that's what the webcast should look more like this year. So because of the extra attention that's going to be put on these games, there's more attention to detail in terms of camera work, lighting, et cetera. So hopefully everybody's pretty satisfied because no doubt we're going to have more viewers than ever. That's for sure. Patrick McNeil, voice of the Cape Breton Eagles, my guest here on the Pipeline Show. Let's get to the on-ice product. Uh, How much do you take away from 
what we saw in the preseason as you get ready for the regular season. Valdor, a 5-1, and one, and I think a lot of people expecting good things from the Forer. The Rampart, meanwhile, winless in five games. But Moncton, I think they're rebuilding this year, are they not? But they uh, go 4-1-1 one, and one in preseason. So uh, how much uh, stock do you put into what happens in the exhibition? I generally don't put a lot of stock into it. The stat I always like to give is I'm a baseball fan. I cheered the Expos and stayed with them in, in Washington. And the Expos had the worst record in preseason in 1994 before the magical uh, season was cut short by the strike. And I think that kind of holds to all sports. Now, in theory, the Q preseason may be a better barometer this year for one reason, and that is the fact that because of COVID restrictions, teams had to make cuts before the camp started, basically. They were only allowed to have, I think the number was 34 players in camp, whereas usually teams would start with 50 or 55. So there were actually instances of fringe returning players that didn't even get invited to camp just because you had to make those cuts right away. So in theory, with the rosters being closer to regular season right away, maybe it's more of a barometer. Now, Moncton is heavily rebuilding. And for those that don't follow the queue, they had a strong team anyway last year. And then they made a couple of big deals, picking up the Jared McIsaac at Benoit Olivier grew. And they basically end up getting nothing for those players, really, because they move on and they didn't even get a playoff run out of them. But they're one of those teams that's gone with some older players to fill in some of the holes. So that should help them a little bit. Valdor being atop uh, the preseason standings very well could be a barometer of what to expect in the regular season. They are expected to be very strong. Uh, Quebec, not necessarily a bottom-feeding team, but last year they went with, went with five 16-year-olds. So they're a team that's still rebuilding, and it's really Patrick Waugh is only really now starting to put his paws on the ramparts to make them look like his team mm. because they were kind of lost in the wilderness for a few years, and I think he's probably very happy with the nucleus that he's accumulated there, but it's uh, not their time to win yet, and I guess the preseason record reflected that. All right, so a couple more years before the rampart. Excuse me. Before the uh, before the ramparts start to take off, uh, once again, when you look just in the Maritimes, who's the team to beat? Well, St. John is kind of the sexy pick to start the year. St. John, I believe the stat was they had seven players that were ranked in the top 50 in the 2018 draft, and there was a couple that fell because of NCAA and things like that. Uh, they had three picks in the first round that year, and then they ended up trading for Alex Drover from Cape Breton. So they have four first round picks from that year. They have a couple of guys they picked in 2019 that were NCAA bound that they got to decommit in the offseason, and Peter Reynolds and Cam McDonald. Josh Waugh was the first pick in the Q draft last year. He had a bit of a slow start, and then he picked it up as the year went on. So St. John is a team that has a lot of talent, but they're still a year away, I would think. And defensive side of the game, a bit of an issue there. William Poirier, and, or sorry, William Villeneuve and Jeremy Poirier are their star defensemen, and they both can put up the points, but the play in their own end might be a bit of a concern. Mm-hmm. They hired Greg Gilbert in the offseason as a head coach, and it was interesting. I was looking at his teams in Saginaw. They tend to focus on the offside, uh, offensive side of the game as well, so we might uh, see that in St. John more so. Charlottetown's returning a lot of players from last year, so I would think they are going to be the principal competition for the uh, Sea Dogs for first, but you know, selfishly, I wouldn't want to count out to Cape Breton because we've got some high-end players that are coming back, Nathan LaRose and Jared Baker on the back end and Ryan Francis and Sean Elmont up front, so we might be the best poised to take a crack at those two teams. But it should be a pretty competitive division in the Maritimes. Looking forward to it this year. I'm assuming that rosters aren't completely full because of the import players and travel restrictions, and what about the Americans? I don't know how many impact Americans there are expected to be in the queue uh, right now, but uh, you know, are are the U.S. players and the imports uh, from Europe uh, all uh, 
not with their respective clubs just yet? Very much a question mark. And actually, some news came down today that, uh, as we record this, a Swedish team had actually signed Timo Nickel and Senna Peters. Uh, Timo Nickel is an Austrian who plays on the blue line for Drummondville. He's going to be 19 this year, key player for them. And Senna Peters actually has a really interesting background. He grew up in Belgium and then started playing internationally for Austria. So he's also gone. So those are two pretty good players on their respective teams. Victoriaville really hit the jackpot in the sense that their two imports, I don't think either of them ever left. So they're going to be both there to start the year. Hmm. Both NHL drafted players, Mikhail Abramov, Toronto, and Igor Serduk of Philadelphia. Uh, Vasily Panamarev is in Shawinigan. So that's a good coup for them. At, around the league, teams are still trying to make arrangements. There's still a lot of question marks. As for Americans, there's not a ton of, of Americans in the league and certainly not really any stars. But Halifax is another team that has an American, Zach Jones. He's still in the U.S. Interestingly enough, Bathurst uh, did get a free agent defense. I can't remember his first name. I think his Jenkins is the last name that played in the OHL. And he's an American, so they did manage to get him in camp. So there are some instances of Americans coming up. But I know Matt Gould was in the running for a 20-year-old spot in St. John. He's not there, but they may have just decided he wasn't a good fit. So not looking great for the limited number of Americans that are in the league to come up, and the imports are still a big question mark. And for some teams, that's more of an issue than others. Uh, Sherbrooke was the top team in the league when the season halted. And if Samuel Poulin doesn't make Pittsburgh, the Phoenix should have a really strong team. However, that is heavily contingent on Samuel Hillaby, who was probably going to be the best goaltender in the league, coming over from Slovakia. If he doesn't come over, then that's a big big hole they have to fill. Uh, you know, I know what you're used to seeing in the WHL stereotypically doesn't really attract strong Europeans, but in the QMJHL, imports are often a big part of team success. We have been blessed with a lot of good Europeans here over the years, and uh, certainly some teams are going to have some uh, some soul-searching uh, to do if uh, those players don't uh, come over from uh, their European homes. And as we saw with uh, Santa Peters and Timo Nickel signing uh, in Sweden, well, maybe that's more of a concern than we thought it was. How did you pronounce that goalie's last name? Because I think I've heard it three different ways now. You know what? You've probably heard it three different ways from me. I think <laughs> I usually go with Samuel Hillavy, but uh, he was sensational last year when we played in Sherbrooke. The Eagles lost 6-1, I think, in that game, but they actually carried the play. Hillavy made something like 48 saves. He was unbelievable. And uh, the only guy better than him was probably our guy, Kevin Mandelise, but uh, Mandelise is uh, off to the Ottawa Senators organization. So it's funny with the imports, you're seeing these weird situations like Igor Sokolov, He's a star Russian that played for us last year. He led the league in goals, Mm -hmm. and he's still in Cape Breton. He was going to stay in Canada to uh, train in Montreal, but just because of everything that happened, uh, he wasn't uh, able to travel. So he is in Cape Breton and going to Halifax to skate a couple of times a week with uh, some better competition. So the Eagles don't have any of their imports here yet, and yet their star import from last year is in the stands watching the game. So it's kind of a bizarre visual seeing him uh, walk around the arena in preseason, but it's just uh, another one of those crazy things that uh, could only happen really in the COVID-19 era. Is he too old now? Yeah, well, he'd be coming into his 20-year-old season, and obviously the team – is you know planning for the year to come with their two imports they have and it's very much expected that he's going to be drafted despite the fact he'd be overage for draft but he had such a great year was a big part of russia's world junior team that it would be shocking if he didn't get picked so he's uh, kind of uh, watching from afar and it's kind of cool because he's actually uh, billeted with a 16 year old on the team that he wouldn't have been teammates with otherwise but uh, now down the road uh, lucas canning who uh, we're hoping uh, develops into maybe an igor light can tell us stories of uh, living with igor so just uh, another bizarre situation in a year that has been full of them. But if he's eligible still to play in the league, but isn't going to play for Cape Breton, is he like a free agent? Can somebody else pick him up since he's there? 
I think they go on special lists in the CHL, the 20-year-old imports. I'm not sure exactly how that works. There may be special provisions for that as well, hmm. but it's just a matter of where they're just basically waiting to see what happens with the draft. And that's going to be an interesting thing too, because usually if a player who has a good 19-year-old season gets picked late in the draft, you don't think much of it. It doesn't necessarily affect uh, your junior team. But in this case, you have no idea how those players are going to look at camp and the pros until you're a couple of months into the season. Right. And the other big thing that came down earlier this week is that Corto says he expects that Alexi Lafreniere could play some games in Ramuski before the NHL season starts, which nobody thought was going to be a possibility. Gabriel Forche is another one. He looked like he was going to jump to the pros as a 20-year-old. Moncton looks like they're going to have his services for a few months, and then he would likely apply his trade in the AHL. So still so many questions to start to be answered, and I think for a lot of people probably reminiscent of what happened in 2012, 2013. You look at the Jonathan Huberto was skating in St. John, and then he goes up to Florida for the second half of the season. So uh, still lots of questions, and only time will give us the answers, I guess. All right, before I let you go, uh, Patrick, uh, about the draft, uh, we know Lafreniere is going to go first, uh, and there's a handful of other guys from the queue that could get uh, taken in the first round. One of the interesting guys is uh, Hendricks Lapierre, who missed so much time last year uh, with, uh, what was it, neck injury? They weren't really sure exactly what the problem was, but now it looks like he's going to be okay long-term, and he's off to a great start here in the early preseason. How big is that for him now that the draft is just over a week away? Well, to give you an idea, Shawinigan and Shakutami played a preseason game last Friday, and there were 35 scouts there. So the scouts have been hard at it in the preseason because there's not any other hockey for them to evaluate. And you look at those teams, of course, Dawson Mercer on uh, Shakutami, and then you have on Shawinigan Maverick Bork is an outside chance to go first round as well. In the case of Lapierre, he was first overall pick in the queue. Obviously, a lot of hype on him. He was on a loaded team in Shakutami last year, so maybe he didn't get as much of the ball as a player like him usually would, but two goals and 17 assists, I think. So he's definitely capable of being a playmaker. The concussions are the big issue with him. They found out about the neck injury when they were kind of doing some further research as to what happened to him, but he has had multiple concussions. So that's something that uh, could scare teams away. But in terms of the skill, there's no question that this is a, you know, probably top half first round skill player. But whether or not a team is scared off due to the history of injuries is another thing. And then it's an unfortunately, that's been a trend in the queue the last couple of years with a lot of key players. You look at Justin Barron and Halifax, the viewings of him were limited because of a blood clot. And he has an injury to start this season. So scouts aren't even going to get a chance to see him at the beginning of the year now. So that's unfortunately been an issue the last year for whatever reason, key players getting hurt in the queue. But Lapierre, the talent is there, but whether a team wants to take the risk with his injury history is the question to be answered. But hopefully uh, we get to see more like what we saw in the preseason where he was able to string together some good games and has a healthy campaign. That's what everybody would like to see. Hey, Patrick, you saw on Twitter uh, a fan was asking us about the, the scouts that were at that game and just how many NHL scouts happen to live in the Maritimes. Do you have any guess? And I'm guessing most of them that live out there would probably be in Halifax or St. John or something like that, maybe Moncton. But do you know how many Like, how many do you get at a normal game uh, in Cape Breton? I know it's a little uh, further north and, and maybe uh, don't draw as many NHL scouts there as, as Halifax does. But what's the average? It really depends. Like sometimes you'll get a game that for whatever reason is a hot ticket. And then all of a sudden you look over and the press box is full. There'll be nights where I only see two or three. That would be kind of your, maybe your baseline, I guess. What I was told is that there's a 11 registered scouts in the Maritimes. And I'm not sure if NHL teams would have the capability to add 
because if you're thinking about it, you're looking at two months worth of hockey that is strictly being played in the QMJHL. And now for those that are unaware, and I should have clarified this earlier, I don't know if a lot of people outside Atlanta, Canada realize this, Atlanta, Canada has been operating in a bubble system for the last little while, yeah. which means if you come to Atlanta, Canada, you have to quarantine for 14 days before you can do anything. So it's not necessarily likely that we'll see any scouts from outside of the region. You know, last year it wouldn't be uncommon to see a Quebec-based scout in our arena. That happened all the time, but the logistics of that will be a lot more difficult this year. And you look at, uh, you know, our general managers Quebec, and at the beginning of the year, it so happens that uh, the man that owns our team, Erwin Simon, also owns the hotel in Sydney. So the Quebec place players were all living in the hotel for 14 days while their quarantine was being served. But that'll be a thing that limits the scouts in the Maritimes. I'm not sure how that would affect Quebec. Obviously, they're allowing the teams to travel despite uh, the heightened restrictions. So you may see uh, more instances of uh, 35 scouts at a game because I guess the scouts don't have anywhere else to be, at least for the first couple <laughs> months of the season. Well, that's true. That's true. Well, Patrick, I really appreciate your uh, your preview for the season and what we can expect. Uh, should be an interesting one, and I think you're gonna have. A, you're right. You're gonna have a lot of eyes on the league that, that normally might not be watching. Uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks for having me on. Have a good season, Geek. Patrick McNeil, voice of the Cape Breton Eagles, uh, my guest in that uh, segment to set the stage for the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League this year, which uh, just kicked off. As I'm speaking with you, it's still Saturday. Last night, opening night action in the queue. Up next on the Pipeline Show, we're going to have a campus report segment. Another play-by-play guy. This time, we're going to Michigan Tech, where the longtime voice of the Huskies is Dirk Hembroff. And by listener request, he's on the Pipeline Show next. Here comes Jaden Schwartz, pulls the trigger, pants into the jets, he scores! What a finish! Yeah, this kid's just special. Jaden Schwartz is just a special, special player. Hi, this is Jaden Schwartz from Colorado College. You're listening to the Pipeline Show. Hi, I'm Sarah from Arcan Trailer and RV. We know many lives have been altered and plans have changed, but something that hasn't changed is everyone's desire to make new memories with their families. Arcan wants to help you go camping this summer and we'd like to make your payments for you. This isn't a deferral. We'll make your payments all summer long. Or if you currently have an RV but need a new one, trade it in and we'll make your payments too. It's on us. Visit ArcanRV.com for details and start planning your best trip ever. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. I think I'm getting the black lung, Bob. This is The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming, and let's have an NCAA campus report. Of course, those are always brought to you by College Hockey, Inc. If you are a player or you have one in your family and they're exploring all of their options, well, you need to know what you can and what you can't do to maintain your NCAA eligibility. College Hockey, Inc. is a great resource for that. You can get in touch with Mike Snee or Nate Ewell. And uh, they'll help steer you in the right direction as well and answer any questions that you might have. This week on the Campus Report, we're heading to Michigan Tech. And we're going to be joined by the play-by-play guy for the uh, Huskies. And this is by uh, listener request, uh, Matt Todd, requesting that I uh, track down the voice of the Huskies. And that, of course, 
is uh, Dirk Hembroff. Uh, Dirk, welcome to the Pipeline Show. Dirk, how are you? Oh, thank you very much. I enjoy this and glad you uh, got a hold of me. I'm glad we have a time to do this. This is awesome. Yes, well, I appreciate it as well. And, you know, in this day and age when we don't have a whole lot of actual hockey news to talk about, it's uh, conversations like this that I've uh, really come to enjoy. Just getting to know another broadcaster. I, I do some games up here as well. Uh, but uh, not play-by-play, but uh, maybe we'll start with that and, and how you got into it. You've been, you were telling me you've been at Michigan Tech now for almost a, a two full decades, uh, season 19 coming up. Uh, how'd you first get into it, Dirk? Well, we're a small town here. This is the Houghton-Hancock area. That's where Michigan Tech is. And I'm born and raised in this area. And, um, you know, my dad went to school here, played freshman hockey at Michigan Tech. And so I grew up watching the Huskies um, my whole life. And again, very, being a very small town here, uh, had friends that actually worked at the little radio station where Bob Olson, the legendary broadcaster for tech hockey for many, many years, would have uh, young kids come in and, and do part-time work. And some of my friends did that. Long story short, uh, my senior year of high school, which was just literally right across the street from uh, the radio station, we would go in. We actually did a, a, a pirate radio show at midnight with a the owner not even knowing we were doing uh, doing the, the radio show. That kind of got me the bug with the whole thing. And um, I had a chance to do, you know, right out of high school, do some high school sports, high school hockey, football, basketball, uh, not even getting paid, just um, getting the experience. And I hung around long enough, I guess, and, and got to the point where I was uh, good enough to uh, fill in for Bob Olson, uh, several times over the years as he started to get up there and have other interests. And when it was time for him to move on, um, all the powers that be were um, asked me to, to hang on and be the guy. And I was more than happy to do it. That's awesome. I, I want to go back to the pirate radio days for a second. How long did that go on for? And when it came to an end, was it by choice or did somebody figure it out and, and shut you down? Well, it was um, one of those situations where uh, it was just the end of a semester at school, basically, and, and the uh, the manager at the time um, allowed us to do it behind uh, the owner's back. It, it was very harmless, but it was basically at midnight on Friday nights, we'd get an hour, and we'd get a chance to take all the old radio carts, uh, that you know, all the so- old songs that were on cart, and, and throw them in there and, and do our own little show, and we'd record it, and we thought we were the greatest thing <laughs> in the world until you go back and listen back to it, and you realize just how awful it was. <laughs> I wonder if that's if you were to look back or listen back to uh, your play-by-play back, you know, twenty twenty-five years ago, would you feel the same way? Um, I do. I do listen because just about everything has been recorded over the years. It, you know, I have a whole box full of uh, cassette tapes from my high school days because we had a lot of good high school hockey teams and high school football teams up here that would often go down to the states. So I would have those recorded and uh, those aren't as cringeworthy as you might think they are but uh, there were certainly was some some of them where you go oh boy I had a long way to go so i know there's a lot of sports uh, obviously there and and uh, you know it's not like it's a here in canada hockey is the number one thing i know in the states there's a lot more options and at a school like michigan tech there'd be other options as well where does hockey rank though in the mindset for the local community is it is it close to number one? Oh no it's not even it's not even not even close to being um, a decision. Hockey is far above uh, the biggest sport here in in the Copper Country where where we are at Houghton Hancock. Um, 
you know, it's the only Division One sport at, at Michigan Tech. Ah. Everything else is Division Two. Uh, football is, is huge. Basketball is huge, but it's it it's it's a different ball game, so to speak. Um, hockey is hockey rules up here, especially Michigan Tech when it comes to, um, yeah, when it comes to the sport of of the colleges, it is Michigan Tech hockey. All right. Well, that's awesome to hear, and I guess to have that opportunity then being that you were a fan and you're from that area, I'm almost thinking that's uh, maybe dream come true. Was that, I mean, a lot of guys would say this was the, you know, broadcasting games at a collegiate level or a high school level might be the stepping stone to eventually going pro, for instance. But maybe if you're from there, was this always the, the target goal? Yeah, I mean, I, and I, it was just one of those things where, where I never even dreamt of it. Um, and then once you start doing some high school games, you, you still don't even think that, you're ever going to get a chance to do something like this. And, um, you know, when it came about, it was, it was, it's, it's still an honor. I mean, every single game, you know, when Michigan Tech was really struggling for many years early in my, my career, they were really struggling. You know, they played in the best league in the country, the WCHA back then, you know, you had your North Dakotas, you had your uh, Minnesotas, your Wisconsin's. And, you know, we were, you know, every weekend we were broadcasting guys, you know, Jonathan Taves and, uh, you know, big, big Pavelski and all those names, uh, you know, we'd, we'd have all those names every weekend come into our barn here. And, uh, you know, the Huskies would struggle back in those days. But uh, it's it's been quite different the last um, 10 years or so. And it, it's an absolute blast every weekend. Yeah, it's funny when you have you get a lot of superstars coming through the rank, but they're always on the other team. I've been uh, calling games for clubs that have been in, the, in that same situation, too. It's the, you know, it's a lot of fun to see those players, but knowing your team is probably going to be on the losing end most nights, uh, it's not a lot of fun. That can be a challenge. It, it was a challenge. Uh, it, one of the things that kept you going, you were playing in, you know, again, you were playing in the best league. You knew that every night. Um, you knew you were playing the co- the best competition in the all of Division One NCAA uh, every night. And, um, you know, you, you just – that that kept you going. You had that opportunity to, up, to, to be the upset every night. But now it's different. Um, you know, the WCHA is not what it used to be. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's some really strong, really, really strong teams in there. And Tech's one of those strong teams. And, and you play the non-conferences and you beat the Michigans, you beat the Michigan States. I mean, it's um, you're not going in every weekend like you did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I uh, really think he didn't have much of a chance. It's it's kind of the opposite in many in many regards. Well, uh, so I was going to ask about the evolution of the program since you've been around it, and I guess with the differences of conferences going from the WCHA, oh, I mean what it is now, and the the NCHC coming up, and a lot of those teams uh, kind of jumping over to that conference, and and I know we got a conference uh, a realignment coming up again here in the next year or two. How does that? affect the the product on the ice and and maybe the support from the fans or does it changing things up every once in a while does it kind of reinvigorate the interest well it works on both ends i think and and you know when when that the most recent realignment happened you know uh five six seven whatever many years ago it was when uh, the the nacho league got going and the big 10 had you know had penn state take everybody away um you know everybody thought well geez here we go we're uh we're not going to get the best players coming to um, to be, to the WCHA anymore because you don't have that pull of North Dakota, Michigan, or North Dakota, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, and those teams. Um, but you know it works both ways too. There's also uh, better opportunities um, for some players, and um, you know the Big Ten 
though it's it's a huge conference, it, it maybe hasn't had the had the luster that um, a lot of people thought it would have. And uh, you know, it, it just I guess it, it, it works both ways. And, and what has happened is, um, you know, they had some coaching changes at Michigan Tech, and I'm not saying that was it, but the the talent has come from different places um, than it was before. We're starting to get some of the um, better Michigan kids. We've got five Wisconsin kids on this team, and these are all kids that would have gone to Michigan, would have gone to Wisconsin, you know, uh, a couple of Minnesota kids that would have never have come to Michigan Tech and would have either gone to a different Minnesota school or, or go, gone to the Gophers or North Dakota. We're getting some of those players now where um, – and we you know we still have our our BC kids, we still have our Alberta kids, but um, it's it, there's more of the closer kids that are coming to Michigan Tech now than than maybe they were uh, 10, 15 years ago, and um, it's just it's just a little different makeup of of the team, and it's very competitive. I mean, Michigan Tech has has the ability to beat any team any any night, and that's all you really want when you're a really small school. Um, at the Division One level, with such a phenomenal hockey tradition, in a different age than it was back in the day when John McGinnis ruled college hockey, um, that's all you can ask for is the ability to um, beat any team at any given night, and that's where we're at right now. I think Derek Ambroff, the uh, voice of the Michigan Tech Huskies, my guest here on the Pipeline Show in our Campus Report segment. Uh, how are you going to miss the uh, the trips up to Alaska? I know that's going to change here in the next little bit. <laughs> is this a is this a setup question? I hope. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I'm I'm going to miss. I'm, first and foremost, I have a sister that lives in Anchorage, so that is going to be tough because that was the only time I was able to see her every year. Right. So um, I, I will miss that you know that trip. She she lives twelve minutes away from Sullivan Arena. And, um, yeah, I'm going to miss that part of it. Uh, the actual scheduling of the trip and, and the trip itself, um, you know, it's, it, it, it wears on you, as you know. Um, and I just tip of my hat to the, the Alaska schools that have had to do this every single weekend for their entire existence. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, uh, personally, not going to miss the, the wear and tear of having to go up there every year, no. Uh, and what about the Alabama trip? Um, I, I don't mind, mind that trip. I, I kind of, you know, anytime we can go south at all here. I mean, you got to remember, we, we get nearly 300 inches of snow every winter. Oh, and, um, yeah, and we are, you know, if you look at where we are, we are sticking out right in the middle of Lake Superior. So we are getting massive lake effect every winter. Right. Um, so any time you had a chance to go anywhere south of here, uh, significantly south, um, it, it was kind of a break, I guess. And so we, I didn't mind that trip at all. I didn't mind that trip at all. But um, I'm totally understanding of what the teams are that are forming this new version of the CCHA, what they are uh, trying to do, and, and totally get it with the smaller footprint, um, more like-minded schools, and um, you know, just trying to trying to make it happen. Mm -hmm. it, it's a real fine line college hockey is a tremendous fraternity and it's a real fine line when it comes to um teams and conferences trying to expand the game to help the game uh, to continue the growth of the game and helping yourself and 
I think that's kind of where these teams were right now. They they were to the point where they had to tip a little bit in their in their own uh, greedy favor uh, just to kind of make everything work a little bit better. Dirk, I was looking at the uh, alumni list uh, for uh, former Michigan Tech players. Uh, Tony Esposito immediately jumps off the page. There are a couple of names. I'm up in the Edmonton area, so uh, guys like Andy Sutton, uh, also uh, I made note of that. Chris Chahaki, who was a longtime scout here now for the uh, the Edmonton Oilers. But I wouldn't say it's a star-studded cast of uh, of alum uh, for the Huskies. Who are some of the bigger name players that uh, have been there during your time? Um, well, some of my favorite players, um, uh, Colin Murphy, who a Fort McMurray kid, I believe, if I remember right. He's always been one of my favorites. He was here right when I got here. Um, one of the truly underappreciated uh, players that ever played here at Michigan Tech. He was he was a blast to watch. Um, American kid out of out of uh, down by Detroit, Chris Connor, who I think is still playing some um, some AHL hockey. Had a chance to play with uh, Sid the Kid for a while there in Madonna and and those guys. I just again was was here when I first got going and was one of the most entertaining players I've ever watched on on either side of the uh, red line when it comes to uh, college hockey. Um, you know, we've got Alex Patan was one of my favorites uh, coming through here. He's been gone now for three or four years, mm-hmm. and uh, his brother played a little bit in the pros too, I believe. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, Nick Patan. Yeah, Nick Patan. But Alex uh, was his brother, and he had a great career here at, uh, at Michigan Tech, which is one of the – uh, really a really nice bright spot for the Huskies for, for many years. So those are a couple of guys that come to mind. Of course, we had Randy McKay. That was before my time. I, I remember watching Randy McKay uh, growing up. And Randy still lives up here in the Copper Country, helped out the Huskies for uh, for a few years as a volunteer, but is still a, a big name here in the uh, community. So, yeah, those are some of the guys. And we've got some you know big-time talent on the team right now that uh, we're hoping will – Get a chance to play again this year. I forgot about Jujar Kara as well. Uh, played the one season. Uh, yeah, Michigan Jujar. Tech. Yeah, one 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 season. Uh, you know, Jujar was such a great. He was so young. I think he was still uh, eighteen when he was here. True freshman coming in, big kid. Yeah, and was trying to figure out the game. He and Alex Patan came in at the same same season. I think it was Mel's uh, Mel Pearson's uh, second season and Billy McCult, I believe, uh, you know, um, was the assistant coach at that time. And, and I just remember Dujar starting to figure it out about halfway through the season, really starting to, you know, he was like, a, he was like a, a, a baby deer trying to, to figure the game out, get his feet underneath him and, and really get things working. And, and when he started figuring out, we're like, Oh boy, this guy is going to be, you know, it's going to be really special. And then, <laughs> and then all of a sudden what year he's gone. Yeah. He is gone one year. So, but I'm um, glad to see that, you know, he's still uh, doing well. Before I let you go, Dirk, your, what's your uh, confidence level? Are we going to see a season? Uh, I, you know, we were just chatting before we started about the differences in kind of the COVID-19 situation in, in our two countries. Where are things at right now, and, and do you expect things to get going here? Would they push it back to the late November at earliest? Yeah, I, I don't think, again, nothing official has come out, but everything I've heard is, we likely won't be seeing anything until uh, very late November, early December, possibly some non-conference games, maybe with conference member teams just to get some games in before 
the first of the year, which is after that, I believe, is when is the earliest that they would actually get going with the um, WCHA conference schedule. And I don't think there's going to be much more um, uh, than that as far as non-conference. So, yeah, I, I, as far as the season happening, it seems like every day I get less confident. Um, but I, I do think that they're going to they're going to have some kind of a season going here. I, I'm just fingers crossed, and hopefully everything happens. All right. And compared to last year's club, is there much turnover from uh, the roster that was around last year? Because it was a pretty good team last year. No, it was, and this team was was playing. I mean, you hear about coaches saying you want to play your best hockey towards the end of the season, and you hear a lot of the cliches and stuff like that. This team actually was playing. Um, it's best hockey of the season and uh, the turnover has been so minimal. I, I'm, I'm just looking at the um, last game's depth chart. Uh, the, um, you know, the three, it's just a lot of really good players coming back very deep on paper and which makes this whole delay in COVID-19 suspension and all this stuff um, feel uh, like a kick in the gut. We, we just would hate for these these guys to lose a year or to even lose a half a year. Um, what a waste that would be. So I, I really hope um, not for my sake so much, but for these, these kids that work so hard that they get a chance to put it together and show, show everybody what they can do. Looks just on paper, looking at last year's stats, Alex Smith was a senior. He was one of the leading scorers and Matt Jurisic was the starting netminder. played the bulk of the games in net. What's the situation this year for a goaltender? Do you know? Well, they've got a freshman goaltender coming in, but the big thing is they, with Huntsville cutting their program and then getting it back in that little window, that allowed for anybody from Huntsville, I believe, to go ahead and bolt and do what they wanted. Right. And um, we were able to get our coaching staff was able to um, bring in Sinclair, their uh, goaltender, who we, you know, we saw a lot of, and he saw a lot of rubber against us, and they they played us well because of him. And so uh, St. Clair is uh, on our roster now. And uh, so this will be the, I don't know, third, fourth season now. The Huskies have had a transfer senior netminder. And uh, so far, it's worked out well. So, And then any other two guys, you know, the freshman coming in, and then you have uh, Blake Piedela, um the tw- twin brother of, the, of Logan, who is a uh, phenomenal uh, centerman for the Huskies. Uh, you know, I think the goaltending situation though it being the big question mark is also maybe possibly one of the strengths of this team so um, we're hoping it all works out well let's hope we get to see some college hockey this year dirk i really appreciate your time today i enjoyed the conversation a lot uh, i hope you don't mind if i call you again no absolutely not Guy. thanks for it and um good luck to you the rest of the way everything you guys are going on up there too you betcha stay safe all right appreciate it thank you by listener request there's the voice of the michigan tech huskies that's dirk hembroff and I would like to have him on the show again. I enjoyed that conversation. We'll see if uh, NCAA hockey gets going. What he said, sometime in January, maybe, the end of November looking less and less likely. But, hey, I'm not down there, so I don't know the specific situations. But certainly doesn't seem promising from the outside looking in. I'm feeling the same way about the OHL and, and probably the WHL because of the uh, American-based franchises, mostly, for those reasons. but. Cases uh, certainly going up in Ontario and Quebec, although the Q, they are playing. And locally, the AJHL and uh, the BCHL are, are playing exhibition games as we speak. So things seem to be progressing, but I'm still, I don't know if I'm a pessimist or a realist, or I just have, uh, if I'm too concerned, I have reservations, put it that way.
and they're not for their dinner. One more guest segment to go on this week's show, and uh, Ross McLean, longtime scout, is going to join me. We're going to uh, we're going to tackle some of those uh, debates that you have for players for the 2020 draft. I'm going to throw him a couple names. He's going to have to pick one guy. I might throw him three names. Heck, I even throw four names at him in one instance. And he's going to tell me which guy he's going to pick on draft day and why. And we'll do all of that next here on the Pipeline Show. Hey, it's Jake Neighbors from the Edmonton Oil King. Sawchuck. Here comes Neighbors driving away. Backhander. Scores! What a shot! Oh, Jake Neighbors backhander on the rush. It's 4-3 Edmonton. And you're listening to the Pipeline Show. Troubled Monk Brew of the Week. Hey, it's one of my personal favorites, but tell the people about it. The vacation Mexican lager. When the chores are done, the lawn is mowed or the sidewalk shoveled. This Mexican lager is perfect for floating on fresh powder or floating down the river. Vacation lager is a little getaway every day. Player comparable, Sidney Crosby can do it all and is always in the conversation of the very best. Troubled Monk, visit the tap room in Red Deer or get free same-day home delivery in Alberta by placing an order at TroubledMonk.com. Troubled Monk, craft beverages worth sharing. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Oh, that's greasy. That's really greasy. Yeah, that's greasy. Back on the Pipeline Show, and we're going to end this week's episode, uh, well, it doesn't get any better than this, right before the NHL draft. How about we uh, chat with a guy who knows uh, a lot of these players from his time with Hockey Canada and, uh, of course, uh, independent scout and, uh, you know, free agent scout as well. I think uh, this time of year, well, usually it would be around July, wouldn't it, Ross? Uh, but uh, Ross McLean's my guest, by the way. But um, all the contracts and stuff get renewed uh, usually like a July. So what, what's happening this year for NHL teams and their scouting staff uh, who uh, might have some openings for you? I'm still waiting for all the big ticket guys to find their homes to see where I fit. So right. um, I'm still down the pecking order, but uh, yeah, still still working on it, still bugging some people, and, and hopefully it's it's going to come to fruition here at some point in the next little while, but it's, it's a bit of a waiting game. It's likely going to be into the, into the winter months before real shakeups start happening with teams. So, but you just keep plugging away, keep talking with people, offering what you can and doing stuff like this, which is always good to re-energize you and, and have fun with it. So. Right. And I, you do some stuff with the FC hockey too, don't you? A little bit. Yes. Yeah, so we've partnered up with my uh, McLean hockey program uh, where we're doing some, some training for scouting and coaching mentorship type stuff, a uh, bunch of different new ideas, you know, we're working on you know training guys how to uh, how to scout video because a lot of this year is probably going to be through remote scouting and, and video is going to be a big thing. Uh, so just just elements like that, and then offering up some little skills, combining you know how to break down tactics and all the fun stuff that I do with the coaching side of the game as well. So we're we're, we're doing some interesting stuff together. Nice. Well, let's get right to it because we might have a long conversation. So what we're going to do is I'm going to throw some. Would you prefer this guy or this guy for the NHL draft? And there'll be guys who are fairly closely ranked uh, together, might be in the same league, might be just notable scorers or notable goaltenders, something like that. Uh, there might even be, you know, three guys. And I'll say, well, put rank these three guys, something like that. 
uh, and you were uh, brave enough to say, yep, throw it at me, and you didn't even want to know the combinations uh, ahead of time, so these are going to be coming at you uh, for the first time as uh, people hear them. So, ready to go? I'm ready. A little scared, but I'm ready. <laughs> well, well, a lot of these guys will be at the higher end, so the first, second yeah. round type uh, guys, because those are the most interesting uh, decisions uh, on the draft floor that are made. Let's start with, uh, this is a three-pack. We got uh, Marco Rossi of the Ottawa 67s and Jack Quinn, his teammate with the 67s, and Cole Perfetti. And all three of these guys, really offensive. Uh, Rossi led the CHL in scoring with 120 points. Perfetti not that far behind with 111 points. Both of them just shy of 40 goals. But then Jack Quinn's got 52 goals, uh, one of the highest scoring guys in the entire class of 2020. Who do you like? You've only got one pick. Who's the guy you take on the draft floor if all three are available? And uh, I guess maybe give me the three in order for you. So it's a fun one because these are, you know, you're looking at guys that are all potential top 10 picks. that are all specialists. Uh, Rossi's more of a kind of a playmaker, uses his speed a lot has a kind of smaller stature quite elusive but just makes it all fit really well uh perfetti is that high-end skill guy really good with the puck uh when if you got him on your team he's he's taking the first shot in the shootout every single time because you're you're going up one nothing and getting the advantage in the shootout every single time and then uh, quinn really is a pure shooter uh and and was kind of flew under the radar a little bit for for uh, a lot of people this year with putting up 52 goals but you know he's got a great release got great instincts away from the puck always find an open space he's a real danger all the time so all three kind of have their own little fit in terms of you know what their specialty is and that's really the appeal of all of them they've all got some kind of questions about them too Mm -hmm. in terms of you know how dynamic and versatile they can be so you know for me looking at it and just sort of the the body of work uh, of everybody so far. Perfetti kind of stands out um, if you're comparing those three and you got to make a decision between those three. And, and the reason I say so is he's just, he's got this electricity to him that puts people in the seats. I mean, yeah, you like guys that are, you know, pure shooters like Jack Quinn, they're really hard to find and playmakers, guys that can amplify other players' skills are, are you know, really good. But if I'm using a top 10 pick, I'm looking for somebody that's, that I'm going to be able to kind of sell around. Um, you can build team around really kind of any of the three of them, but I think Perfetti just offers a little bit more in terms of that excitement level. He's going to, he's going to drive people to be a fan of whatever team uh, that he is. And, and I think he's got a lot of growth to do as well in his game. And to me, he seems like the one that's probably most likely to round his game out uh, compared to the, compared to the others. You're not saying that they're not going to, but he's sort of the one that I look at as saying he might have a, higher ceiling as a specialist to eventually fit as a as a real team centerpiece type so you know I'd I'd probably go with him Um, Marco Rossi is just so hard to pass up because he is an amplifier and I I really do have a bias towards amplifiers guys that make other players better and I feel like he's one of those guys Jack Quinn kind of got lumped into that that he was made better by Mm. by Marco Rossi and his numbers went up by Marco Rossi but they didn't ever really play together on the same line they'd play on special teams together every now and then and it was magic it was lights out um but that to me speaks more to rossi's skill set than it does quinn's skill set so if i was going to order those guys i would say perfetti rossi and the quinn excellent love the way uh, we got that uh, hammered out uh, very uh, clearly and uh, lots of good insight on that as well let's go to a couple of defensemen again at the high end probably the first two defensemen who will be chosen Jamie Drysdale from the Erie Otters, who had 47 points in 49 games uh, for the Otters. And then you got Jake Sanderson, different player for sure, uh, 29 points in 47 games. 
you know, they don't play a similar style game, at least not in my opinion. You can uh, tell me if I'm wrong on that. But uh, if you've only got one pick and they're both available of the two, who do you like more and why? Well, this, again, is a really tough one for me because I know Jake Sanderson. I've worked with him for many years. I know the family very, very well. Still work with the younger brother quite a lot. And he's just such an amazing kid. Uh, his work ethic's incredible. His understanding of his development path has been elite. Uh, you know, this is a guy that has just taken every step as it needs to be taken, has not tried to take any giant leaps, and it's just paying huge dividends. I think he's just going to keep doing that. And so, you know, to me, his ceiling is just almost unlimited. Um, you know, but with that being said, uh, Jamie Drysdale to me is, is the second best player in this entire draft. And uh, I've said this for a long time. He just, he's so elite. And we saw in the NHL playoffs just how important it is to have those guys. Uh, your, your Miro Heiskanen's and, and your Kale McCars. Uh, those guys are, they're kind of the, the new guard and the way that the game is going. And Drysdale is right there in terms of the skill set with, with players like that and what he can do. He is so smooth. His skating is so efficient. This is a guy that's going to be able to play 30, 35 minutes a game if he needs to at some point. Uh, there's just so many different layers to his game. Uh, but to me, he's the type of guy that if you want to win these days, you need a defenseman that can play the game the way that he plays it. And they're still, while they're becoming more and more common, there's still only, you know, a handful to 10 of them in the world. And he's going to be one of those guys. So again, as much as I absolutely adore Jake Sanderson and I'm so excited to see how his development goes, he's going to be a hell of a player uh, to me. You, you put Jamie Drysdale in a group with, you know, some of the guys that are being talked about at second and third overall, and I'm probably still picking Drysdale. Wow. Okay. All right. Uh, well, Ross McLean is my guest joining me courtesy of the Troubled Monk Hotline. I'm enjoying uh, a delicious uh, beverage from uh, Troubled Monk as we speak, as it's uh, Friday night as we are doing this. So it's uh, right in the wheelhouse for a nice uh, cold beverage. Uh, all right. Let's go to uh, another pair of defensemen. Actually, we're going to make this a... Uh, a three-way for a defenseman. Oh, that sounded terrible. But uh, let's go with Brendan Gooley and uh, Braden Schneider out of the WHL. And then we'll throw in Justin Barron into the mix uh, just to make it interesting. Is it Gooley and Schneider, uh, a battle between them? And then maybe the question is how far off is Justin Barron? Or is Barron right in that mix for for you? If you if you got one pick and three guys to go from, who are you taking, Ross? Well, you know, we talk about these guys' skill sets. Uh, Braden Schneider, offensive defenseman, has has worked on kind of becoming a little bit more versatile, but still has those offensive tendencies. Uh, Caden Gooley is uh, a very rough and tumble, you know, the type of guy you like having on your team you don't like playing against. And Justin Barron's kind of a mix between the two. Um, Justin Barron has, you know, a really good shot, uh, but doesn't play a game that stands out. You know, you're going to notice Gooley because he's going to come and he's going to do something usually fairly violent. Uh, you're going to notice Schneider because he's going to do something with the puck every now and then that kind of gets you noticing him. Uh, and, and while Barron's kind of able to do a little bit of both, he really just sort of fits his way in uh, and plays the game in a reliable way. From a coaching standpoint, if I'm looking at this, um, you know, Barron's probably the guy that I'm the happiest with. From a, you know, putting together a team and in terms of, you know, potential and what they are, their value as, as players are, uh, Schneider is really the only guy that kind of maybe has a, a chance to be in that conversation with, you know, players like Jake Sanderson. Um, you know, Gooley is definitely probably the best, uh, pure defensive defenseman, uh, in this one. Now he's got some offensive pop to him too, and it's, it continues to develop, but, uh, you know, his, his strength really is to be that stay at home guy. 
So it really is going to come down to sort of, you know, depending on my situation as a team, what I want, uh, what I have as a coach and what we're comfortable with, what our structure is. Cause these are all guys that aren't far away from, from playing in the NHL either. They're, you know, two or three years of development and, and they're going to be, you know, regular everyday guys. Um, so to me, in, in terms of value, uh, I really like the guys that are hard to play against. So I'm probably putting Gouli a, a slight bit ahead uh, of Baron and Schneider, but I don't think the gap is large between them. And I definitely don't think the gap is large for, for Baron in terms of, you know, his effectiveness and his value as an NHL prospect compared to those guys. You see Gouli as more of a stay at home physical guy more so than Schneider. Yes. Yeah. Schneider, just his, his tendencies are to lean offensive. His tendencies are to, you know, get involved in the play uh, while Gouli will, he, he kind of projects more and, and where his strengths really are, are in his power. Uh, and, and again, his, the little jam that's in his game. And I think that's where, where he projects as a next level player is he's not going to be a, he's not going to be a guy that's leading your power play. He's going to be a stabilizer. And again, we talk about how important, you know, players like Jamie Drysdale uh, and Miro Heiskanen and Kale McCarr and guys like that are, uh, they can only really ever be at their top potential when they have a stabilizer with them. So those stabilizers are also extremely valuable. And I see him as fitting into that mold as being a, a top level stabilizer. All right, perfect. Uh, let's go to a couple fours out of the queue next. And uh, Maverick Bork, who had a really good season, 29 goals, 71 points in just 49 games for Shawinigan. And then you've got uh, Andrex Lapierre, who missed a lot of time. 17 points, though, in 19 games. Apparently, he's got off to a great start here in training camp and opening night here in the queue. Last I saw, he had three points uh, on opening night. Uh, and maybe some of those uh, concerns about his uh, his health might be slightly going away. Uh, but between those two, who do you like uh, more and why? Well, Lapierre is probably going to be the player that benefits the most from the 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 distance between the normal draft time and, and when we're drafting here this week. And that's because there was a lot of questions surrounding his health and, and a lot of people didn't really get to see the sort of meat and potatoes of what he brings, but he's, he's electric. Uh, I remember seeing him for the first time with Canada's U17 camp and stood out right away. Uh, and just what, what his abilities are. He's just so advanced in terms of, you know, what he could do with edge control and puck control and the way that he thought the game. Uh, Maverick Bork, it was all, it was all his intensity and his effort. Uh, and you could tell this was a guy that just, you know, he, he's got a nose for the net. He wants to make plays. He's got this fire, this competitiveness that, you know, he wants to win. So, so both of them are, again, outstanding talents. They've got a lot of potential to turn them into uh, high-end players. Uh, I just, I, I would, I would roll the dice on LaPierre. I just, his skill level and, and what he's able to do, most guys work their entire lives and they aren't able to do that. And for him to be able to do it, kind of what he was able to do at 16 and seeing him have this start here uh, and capitalizing on that and seeing a little bit of growth, even though there was a year of development basically missed, to me is is really optimistic. So I think that ends up, you, know, you see a player that's turned adversity and a negative into a positive, uh, I think gives them the edge. All right, we'll uh, move on to a couple of European players. And I think a lot of people would expect me to ask you about Holtz and Raymond, but you and I had that conversation about a month ago. I think that was on the season finale or the season premiere uh, of uh, the Pipeline shows the uh, end of season 15 or the start of season 16 back in August. So if you want to hear that conversation again, go back and listen. But you like Raymond a lot. But you like Holtz slightly more. There's the Coles Notes version. But let's go to a couple of Germans. Uh, we know that uh, Tim Stutzel is going to be the top German uh, taken this year. But then there's a couple guys who are scratching the surface of uh, the end of the first round. John Jason 
Paterka, I call him J.J. Paterka, and Lucas Reichel. Uh, now, Paterka had a good year, 11 points in 42 games, playing in the uh, men's, men's league in Germany. Uh, but uh, Reichel had twice as many points in the same amount of games, playing in the same league. How do you see the difference between these two guys? Well, I first saw these guys a couple of years ago, and then they were on the radar for a little while, and then I didn't get to see them again until the World Juniors in the Czech Republic this year. And so when I got there to see them, I had Paterka higher. Um, but Reichel blew me away, especially when Stutzley left the lineup. Uh, and mind you, they were relegation games, but those games often offer the most intense matchups. Uh, Reichel was the best player on the ice consistently. And just ever since then, it's to me, it, it hasn't even been a question uh, to see how, you know, what Reichel can do. Uh, and it's not that I didn't like what Paterka can do, but Paterka was kind of just a guy uh, when those games got really tough and Reichel dominated. Hmm. And, you know, that to me is a telling thing. It's again, not to say anything negative towards what, what Paterka can do because he has a great skill set. I believe he's a kind of an end of the first round, early second round guy, but Reichel's a bona fide first round pick to me. Uh, if you're getting him kind of in the late of the first round and you're looking for, uh, you know, an offensive player to develop, I think you're getting a steal with him because, uh, what I saw, what I witnessed, uh, just again from, you know, watching teenagers, that's a 20 year old tournament and you're watching a 17 year old kid come in there and take over when the stakes are extremely high for, you know, his team, his country. There's a lot of pressure on those guys in relegation games. Um, it's amazing what you can get out of those. And I know, you know, a lot of scouts love those relegation games because that's what you get. You go and if there are some 17-year-olds that can really raise their game, you get an idea of to what their mindset is and what they what what drives them. And, you know, Reichel, Reichel hit a grand slam. He was outstanding. So, you know, for me, he's he's definitely the guy between those two. All right. Do you see them both as uh, late first-rounders or maybe just Reichel or how do you see it? I would have Reichel as a first rounder. To me, he kind of slots in the sort of, you know, 20 to 25 range. Okay. Uh, it's good value for him. Um, Paterka, I would see him more kind of in the 30 to 40 range in terms of where he's picked. So, you know, he's still a, a good value late first round pick, but I would say he's better value as a, as an early to mid second round pick. All right, Ross, I know you're a big fan of Dylan Holloway, so I can't make it uh, just too easy to uh, for you to pick him. So I'm going to put Dylan Holloway of the Wisconsin Badgers, 17 points as a freshman this year in 35 games, and Anton Lundell from uh, HIFK in uh, the Finnish Elite League, uh, 28 points in 44 games playing against men. Uh, I know you like Holloway a lot, but would you take him ahead of Anton Lundell? This is a, a really good one. Um, but you, you also forget my affinity for Finland and how much I love the Finns. That's true. You know, I, I spent a few years there and I absolutely adore that culture and those people. And, uh, you know, Anton Lundell to me is a top 10 pick. Um, if I'm, you know, have this opportunity and we're at pick number 10 and it's between those two, I, I may have a small cornery, <laughs> but I would ultimately probably have to say that Lundell is the safer pick. Um, but again, it depends on kind of need, but really you're looking at two players that I feel project as your kind of two-way reliable players as opposed to, you know, leading a team's offensive line or they're the guys that you're going to put out there to uh, regain momentum, to, to stabilize emotion, um, or to, to make swings uh, for your team. Lundell is just so responsible. He's got a big, strong frame. Uh, and, you know, 
you listen to any interview I've said about Dylan Holloway, I, I don't have enough good things to say about this kid in terms of, again, like Jake Sanderson, I've known him for a long time. I've done a lot of development work with him. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of really good players, and I've never met a player that has the work ethic that Dylan Holloway has. So uh, as much as I would love to say I would take Dylan Holloway ahead, you know, I've got Lundell kind of ranked in sort of my seven, eight, nine range hmm. and, and, uh, you know, Holloway sort of more in my kind of 12 to 15 range. So, uh, it's pretty close. Um, but I would, I would actually probably lean towards, uh, Anton Lundell. All right. Lundell, maybe more offensive upside than Holloway. I know you like Holloway, his two way game at the next level. Is, is that maybe a, a bit of a difference too? I think Holloway will probably outperform him offensively, to be honest. Hmm. What I really like about Lundell is he's got, you know, to kind of compare him to uh, um, maybe a countryman, like he's got kind of a Miko Koivu poise to him, uh, you know, where he's he's able to, to play in his own end well. He's able to match up against uh, uh, other teams, big, powerful forwards really well. Good versatility. I, I'm not completely enamored with his speed or his ability to create offense all the time, but still very, very good. Definitely elite if you're talking about him in the top 10. But uh, I, I ultimately believe that Holloway will be able to outproduce him in terms of offensive numbers. I just look at it from a sense, you know, right now in terms of uh, of your team and you're looking to pick uh, in that sort of range, you're going to want a really reliable option, which both are, but you're going to want a guy that, you know, if you're looking for probably, you know, the top defensive forward, it's probably going to be Lundell. So, you know, you're getting a guy that can, you know, maybe start to play a game around a, around a defensive focus, but still able to chip in. And then a guy that's, you know, going to be able to play up and down your lineup. So Lundell is just a little bit more specialized in terms of what he brings. And I think he's the top player in that specialization to what he brings in the draft. So, uh, whereas Holloway is just so versatile, it's going to be could be anything. Um, I, I you know I really have started to kind of think of him as almost a Bo Horvat template. Hmm. So he's going to be a huge steal where he goes. Um, and again, I would love to say that I would take him over Lundell, but you know, I got to be I got to be true to how I've how I evaluated these guys throughout the years and and where we're at right now in terms of the projections. I, I just have Lundell a little bit higher. Okay. Uh, let's go to the uh, Ontario Hockey League. Here's three forwards uh, for you. Uh, Jacob Perot, who played for the uh, Sarnia Sting this past year, 39 goals, 70 points along the way. Uh, we'll throw Ty Forrester, Tyson Forrester, uh, the Barry Colts, 36 goals and 80 points this season. And then uh, just to make it interesting, uh, Jan Misak, who came over halfway through the year and played in Hamilton, was about a point-per-game guy there. Of those three, how do you break that down? Well, I've seen lately a lot of people really like Forrester, and uh, you know I can't I can't really verbalize a huge disagreement with it. But I am huge on Jacob Perot. Uh, I again, he's one of those guys. The first time I saw him was at a national team camp, and became completely enamored with what he can do. And it was funny because you know a, a lot of people either love him or hate him, and uh, but I. I I have not been able to, and I've heard some of the knocks on him from some guys, and I go and I watch and I look for them, and I've just never been able to find them or, or see them enough that I think this this is a red flag. This guy has so much potential. The way that he thinks the game, he's super strong. I, you know, I was a big fan of his of his father, the way that he played the game too, and I think he's better. And you know, so to 
me, um, he's he's definitely the guy uh, out of those out of those three. Um, Yamisak, great skill level. Uh, again, similar to a similar to a Perfetti in the sense that he's got a little bit of a uh, you know puck control specialist element to him. Uh, electric can can really do some things that you know make you love the game a little bit more when you're watching it as a fan. Um, you know, and then Forster's just continued to grow on everybody, and, and that kind of speaks to his development path and where he's going. So I you know I think he's got great potential. But if I was gonna if I was going to rank those guys, uh, I, I'm I'm putting Perot. I'm really high on Perot. I I would have I would not be upset if a team took him in the mid first round, um, and then I'd probably go Forrester and then Misak from there. Those who don't like Perot, and you said there's a number of people you've heard that uh, question have some concerns about him. What is it about Perot's game that they don't like? Those who you know are, are a little bit more down on him. I've I've heard some rumblings of selfishness with the puck, um, lack of vision. But to me, they're actually strengths of his. He he actually does see the ice really well. I don't think he's selfish with the puck. I don't think he tries to do it all himself. Uh, you know, on every viewing that I've had with him, it, it, they haven't really been issues for me. Um, acceleration has been something people have said, but I see really good power. So you know that maybe that lack of that explosive first step can you you know there is a little bit of justification to it but i don't think it it, it limits him at all uh i think he mitigates it really really well with his power uh and and just how mobile his hips are and i think that that's you know uh, uh with the way that the game's going he's got a skill set that kind of fits with how offense is produced and how pucks are are protected um so you know it's, it's i've never really been able to kind of hear anything about him and say Again, just to reiterate uh, that, yeah, no, I, I agree that this is a problem. All the things that people have come to me with as, you know, reasons why he's not a mid-first round guy or why he's not considered a leader, why he hasn't made, um, you know, national teams and so on. It's, it's to me, they, ha- they haven't fit from what, with what I'm seeing. It's not to, you know, go against anybody's opinion in terms of what they're seeing, but w- from what I've seen, they're, they're not issues, and I would be totally comfortable with it. Uh, now, I've heard some people question Ty Forster as a skating, and in fact, I've I've read reports that have said he's a terrible skater, and other people have said, well, he's not great, but it's something that, of all the traits out there, I think skating, and I personally feel this way, if there's a flaw in a junior and it's skating, that's something that you might be able to say, okay, we're willing to work with him on that, and we've seen guys who weren't good skaters in junior or great skaters become good skaters as pro with Tyson Forster, have you seen that sort of thing for him? Yeah, well, just as you said, there are times where you watch a guy, and, and a lot of Forrester is his potential. Again, I mentioned his development path. He's just kind of climbed in people's opinion. And, and that's because I think there are a lot of scouts now that have come through um, you know, skill development paths where they've learned from skill development, and they're, they're comfortable with seeing those things and saying, I can fix that. And you know, to me, those are the really valuable scouts, the guys that can do that. And I think that's where he continues to rise is that you are seeing a lot of those guys say, yeah, you know, he's not the most aesthetically pleasing skater, but it's not bad. He doesn't have heavy feet. It's not stuff that you can't fix. It's small minor tweaks in a teenager, which are are fairly simple to do. And, and, you know, you can, there's so many good technical experts out there now on how to teach it Mm -hmm. that even if you don't have someone on your staff, it's pretty easy to hook them up with somebody you know, with their team or where they are. And, and, you know, you can be really comfortable in, in, you know, the major centers and in junior hockey in Canada, that those people exist as well. So that almost works for you when you, you know, have some mechanical deficiencies. There are some, you know, 
physiological deficiencies that you can see in players that can really hamper uh, their development. And, and, but you know, with a guy like Forrester, it's, it's, it's mechanical. It's something that, you know, he's going to get better at. So it's actually, it's actually something that works for him. The fact that he's as good as he is now and everyone sees this right away as this, you know, huge staring at you glowing issue. And you, you just, with him, you know, it's going to get addressed at some point, you know, he's going to work towards it. He's kind of had a bit of a proven track record now in terms of being a development focused guy. And, and that's, that's why he continues to be seen in the light that he's seen is that there's, there's potential in a kid that has the mindset that they know they can't do something. And it's, it's a yet question. They're going to work towards it and eventually they're going to be able to do it. Ross McLean is my guest uh, joining me courtesy of the troubled monk hotline. And uh, we're uh, looking at some combinations, some head to head matchups uh, ahead of the 2020 NHL draft, which goes on Tuesday and Wednesday this coming week. Finally, we'll have the, uh, the draft. It seems like this one has been taken forever. Uh, let's go to the uh, WHL, and here's three guys who play somewhat of a similar game. Uh, let's go with uh, Ozzy Weisblatt from the Prince Albert Raiders, 70 points, 25 goals in 64 games. Then Ridley Gregg of the Brandon Wheat Kings with 60 points uh, in 26 games. And how about we throw Jake Neighbors into the mix of the Edmonton Oil Kings, also had 70 points and 23 goals. Uh, of those three, who's the uh, the first guy you take and uh, the next guy as well, and, and tell me why. I, I really like all three. Um, you've got really gritty players again that are, that are pretty versatile. All have good offensive skill sets, but all have a, a competitive fire to them too. They make their teams better with every shift that they go out. So it's it's a great great trilogy of players right there to to compare. Uh, if, if I'm if I'm selecting an order for those three guys, uh, Jake Neighbors is my guy. Um, I, I'm I just love what he brings to a game. He's just got a, a, an extra gear in terms of his compete uh, and the way that he plays the game. Again, he's just really difficult to play against. Uh, and I see that growing and growing and growing. So for me, he's, he's the guy after that. I, I, I have really Greg pretty close because I think that he's probably going to be the best test out of this draft. He has a, uh, just a no quit attitude a never die attitude. He's in your face all the time. Um, and you know, I mentioned, that I like the guys that aren't fun to play against and it's not fun as neighbors is to play against. Greg is the rub it in your face type guy. And he's the guy again, that when he's on your team, you, you tolerate him, but when he's not, he just disrupts everything. And so there, that's a real, that's a real skill to have, and especially coming through a, you know, a pretty rough Western league where you, you play like that. You're, you're bound to pay a, a pretty heavy toll for doing it, mm-hmm. but he does it and he's able to he's able to back it up pretty well in terms of, you know, making people pay when they take the penalties and, uh, you know, to have guys like that, you know, every team wishes they had, you know, some answer or some, some Brad Marchand type player that they could put out there. And he's probably the guy that, that fits that the most. And then, you know, Wiesblad again, not far off, uh, just doesn't really have that extra step that those other two have in terms of that, that, that fire and that grip. But, you know, this is a kid that, uh, just always make something out of nothing. And whenever you bet against him, he, he always, he always answers the bell. So, you know, I, I say that and here I am, you know, putting him <laughs> as the third uh, of the three. And, you know, if there's any other group today where I've had to put somebody behind somebody else, uh, him and Holloway would be the guys that I would say, you know, that I, I might lose sleep over. <laughs> uh, uh, do you see a first round uh, call for any of those three or are they all second rounders in your opinion? Um, I, I would definitely say Neighbors is a late first rounder. 
Um, I, again, like Perot, I, he's a guy that I, I'm a lot higher on than, than some people are. Um, I just, I just see him as a pretty safe pick. Uh, and if you're picking anywhere, you know, to me, if you're picking him from, you know, 20 to 31, you're getting really good value. Um, so I, you know, I, if I had to predict, I say he's going to go late first, early second. Um, Greg may go before him. Um, but I think Wiesblatt is kind of a mid or early second round uh, guy. But uh, you know somebody may take Greg in the late first round just because of his just because of his uh, his past ability, his ability to antagonize. All right, let's go to three guys out of the Alberta Junior Hockey League. Uh, two defensemen and one forward. Two of them are teammates as well. Carter Savoy and Michael Benning from the Sherwood Park Crusaders. You got Savoy who had 99 points in 54 games. 53 of those were goals. Michael Benning had 75 points as a defenseman uh, on that team. And then Ethan Edwards of the Spruce Grove Saints, who had just 33 points uh, by comparison, so half as many points as uh, as Benning did in uh, slightly fewer games. But I've heard a lot of people say Edwards is the better uh, of, and maybe even the best of the three AJHL guys. So I put that trio to you, uh, Ross. Uh, how do you uh, align those guys? Well, you know, Edwards is a very, very interesting player, and there is a lot of potential there. When you watch him play, you're you're really you're seeing stuff that you're able to say, well, you can, this is going to become something like this is, this is pretty, pretty special. Um, you know, he's, he's a average sized player, but doesn't play average. Nothing about his game is average. He really has kind of stepped up uh, in the high profile games. Uh, you know, his development path is just really strong, really, really strong. He's got a, He's got a strong physical element to it, but he still has this, you know, kind of smaller frame that really still needs to be built on. Uh, he's just really gutsy and uh, he's easy to admire. And so I think he grabs a lot of people just because of that. The fact that he is, you know, the type of player that a lot of people admire. Um, when you compare him with Benning, you know, Benning has, has done very, very well, but maybe doesn't necessarily offer the same level of, um, admiration or or uh, a ceiling in terms of uh, a prospect as as Edwards does. Right. Uh, still a still a strong player. You know, smooth skater, thinks the game really well. Um, definitely, probably the best offensive player coming out of you know, the tier two juniors. But uh, you know, I, I even think about it when I'm trying to compare them together. I, I just have kind of a, a, a natural affinity to lean towards. Edwards, just because of, uh, you know, the fact that I think he is going to get a lot better. And he's one of those guys that has really chosen probably the best route for himself. And uh, I don't think we've even touched the tip of the iceberg on, on terms of what he'd become. You know, Benning is already very, very good, uh, can do really good things, but not necessarily certain that that's going to apply, especially with the type of player that he is and the, and the style that he likes to play to the next level. So uh, when you're gauging the potential of those guys, you know, I would, I would, lean towards having Edwards uh, over Benning. When you add Savoy to the mix, now you got, you know, comparing your forward with your D mm-hmm. uh, in that, in that, and uh, Savoy has just been consistently surprising to me. As a kid, I've monitored his development from uh, his first year playing the U15 level. And obviously, you know, his brother's a, a extremely talented player and, you know, gotten to, gotten to watch and, and, and be around the family quite a bit. And, and Carter's development has been, has been very much like Kale McCarr's development was when he got into that league. Uh, Carter was always really just kind of an average player, was often in the shadow of his younger brother when they played together, 
uh, on the same teams, was usually outscored by Matt. And then kind of when he got to this level, really just took a huge stride uh, on his own. And, uh, you know, that's really similar to kind of what happened with Kale McCarry. He was always sort of the last guy cut from every team, played double A and then triple A and then double A and then triple A. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he was behind, he was usually fourth or fifth guy in the depth chart on the teams that he was on. And then all of a sudden he gets there to, to Brooks and, and takes off. So uh, similar kind of story, similar kind of pathway. So, uh, you know, it's hard to ignore, um, but smooth offensive player, certainly offensive instincts running the family um, has a good explosive step. It's just continued to develop really well. Uh, and I'm, I'm really intrigued by his, his development. It's something that I am fascinated with. So it, it becomes a bit of a, a, a question about Edwards or, or Savoy in that, in that spot. But I, I would probably lean to Savoy just because you don't see a lot of 17 year olds put up numbers like that in that league. It's a, it's a really tough league to put up big numbers and, for him to do that and for him to have such a huge growth in a couple of years uh, really, really intrigues me. Savoy and Benning both uh, eventually will go to Denver to play for the Pioneers and Edwards will go to uh, Michigan to join the Wolverines, although he's playing, I know he's playing in the USHL uh, this season. I believe he told me it was Sioux Falls or Sioux City, one of the two teams out of the ushl all right we haven't done a goalie one yet though should we wrap it up with a goaltender uh, uh this is a a four-headed monster all of them out of the whl uh here are the four goaltenders uh, to consider brock gold who played uh, for two two teams this year victoria and moose jaw he played uh, 31 games overall sub 900 safe percentage but he's six foot five uh, so lots to like there then we've got brian thompson who was with the lethbridge hurricanes was basically the 1B this year uh, for uh, the Hurricanes. Again, sub-900 goals against average, but a six foot four frame. Let's go uh, Garen Bjorklund of the Medicine Hat Tigers. He's six foot two. Again, the 1B option there, playing behind Mad Sogard uh, for the Tigers. And we'll end it with Dylan Garand of the uh, Kamloops Blazers. He was their starter. Six foot one, 172 pounds. Uh, of those four, break it down for me, because I think they're all pretty much uh, ranked uh, fairly tightly. Uh, by most people, uh, but who do you like the most and why? Yeah, goalies is going to be a really interesting one this year. Uh, I mean, obviously you've got really high end guy early, uh, and then a few guys that kind of mix in, sort of in the middle, and then you've got you know uh, kind of a traffic jam later on. Uh, I think of that group, probably the the most elite of them uh, is going to be Garand. Uh, he has shown really, really well, and again in in high pressure situations, a little bit smaller than the other guys, but mm-hmm. highly athletic, great speed. Uh, and I think he's the type of guy that, uh, you know, the kind of the way the trend is moving away from goalies don't need to have huge size anymore. Uh, and he's a guy that's kind of, kind of fitting into that mold. You want, you know, good puck trackers that are quick and athletic. And, you know, he's, he's probably the best puck tracker of that group. He's definitely the quickest of that group. Um, Bjorkland, I wouldn't say is, is too far behind, uh, in terms of athleticism, uh, and puck tracking. I don't think he's as, speedy uh but he's got that size advantage uh he's a kid that i've gotten to watch a ton uh, again i got to watch him you know playing in u15 u16 u18 and uh, has always been able to kind of steal the show against older players so there's a lot to like there uh, his development path has been strong uh i thought at times this year he deserved more play uh from from sogard um 
And, uh, you know, with, with the other two, it's, it's really difficult for me, uh, you know, as a hitman guy to, to, to promote a left bridge guy, but, you know, <laughs> I, I would say I probably have, I probably have Thomas there. And part of that is just because I, you know, I've got to see him play firsthand and, uh, experience what it's like, uh, with the frustration of, of, you know, when he's on trying to beat him. So, uh, you know, to, he's an excellent puck tracker, uses his size very well, has really good angles. Um, you know, uh, so that's, that's probably how I would have those four guys. To project a goaltender, I, th- I have a friend who uh, describes the goalies as a, it's like they're voodoo and you never really know what they're going to be like five years later. Uh, but when they're backups in their draft year and they're not playing the, the most uh, starts for their team, doesn't that just make it extra challenging? Is it? Is, I mean, it's hard to evaluate a guy that's only playing 25, 30 games, isn't it? For sure. I mean, obviously, the more you can see them play, the better. But really, with these guys, you're looking for... You know, you're doing a technical skill assessment of what they can do. You're analyzing that. Obviously, you want to know if they can, you know, the main skill for a goalie is do they stop the puck. But there's lots of goalies in junior that have stopped the puck and can't do it at the next level. And there's lots of guys that haven't stopped the puck, go undrafted all of a sudden or get drafted very, very late and show up and are uh, unbelievable players. So uh, I, I, I have gotten more comfortable with it over the year. The problem is there's not a lot of of guys that played the position or have spent the time understanding how the position's taught. It's becoming a little bit more prevalent. You're seeing guys now that can kind of tell you the difference between what VH and RVH is. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of goalie lingo for particular stances. But there's a, there's a reliance in those stances now for some guys because they've been taught you always do one as opposed to the other. So things like that can really hold a guy back. Uh, things like that, you can, you know, see a goaltender that's playing behind good defense and they play a particular style that's bad. And once they get against better shooters, they're going to get exposed. Um, but the, the, the biggest, the biggest skills for goaltenders and a lot of scouts are learning this now is puck tracking, uh, and, and finding the guys that, that track pucks. It's really difficult to teach. Um, goaltending consultants do a, a ton of work and goaltending coaches do a ton of work on it every single year. But, it, you know, it's not like skating where you can say, okay, we're going to do a whole bunch of little technical adjustments. There's a focus element to it. There's a mental aspect to it. So when you're watching goalies uh, and seeing how they read the game and how quickly their eyes uh, react to plays and, and whether they're fixated on the puck uh, really can actually tell you. And you can get a, good, a pretty good idea as to, you know, which guys are going to continue to be successful. You see goalies that are, you know, their leg moves before their eyes move. You can tell that they're being a little bit reactive and anticipating the play, which is a skill, but it's a skill that's more likely to get exposed as they get higher. So uh, the, the voodoo is getting figured out a little bit. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, there are teams that have done a lot of homework on, on uh, you know, you can go to a warm-up and you can see how a guy's tracking pucks because they're really good goalies. It's a habit, and it's not like they, they can't consciously not do it. Mm. So when you find guys like that, I, I remember the first guy I ever saw doing it was Braden Holpe when he was with Saskatoon, and it was just so noticeable to me just how his head led every movement and how his chest made every save because of that. So he was just always in the right position, and he was athletic enough to, to back that up, and that's the ne- that next step. So, you know, when you're evaluating goalies, watching their head, and then seeing how their athleticism and their speed factors into that and then you can start to add all the other things you talk about with goalies the depth control the angles all of those things but you know the the voodoo does disappear a little bit when you see uh, guys that have high potential um, and you're able to evaluate their puck tracking even just a couple of times because it really is habitual ross the draft goes on a tuesday and wednesday every once in a while we have we see somebody get to pick way off the board sort of 
Uh, Thomas Hickey that one year when he went fourth overall to the LA Kings was a, a shocker to everybody. I remember the Oilers back in, I don't know, 2002 or 2003. Yes, he Mackey was their first round pick and that shocked everybody as well. Anybody like that right now that you think is, man, I bet, I wonder if that guy could get to taken a lot higher than everybody's expecting. Anybody like that come to mind when I describe it like that? Well, I mean, I want to see Dylan Holloway because, again, if somebody takes him in the top 10, I'm going to be ecstatic about it. I think it's going to be a great pick, and everybody else may be <laughs> shining a lot of light onto it okay. in terms of, you know, their their dislike. But, you know, there, there are a couple of guys. Um, you know, I think William Wallander is a high candidate for a player that is going to get drafted maybe earlier than a lot of people think he will. Okay. Um, Jeremy Poirier is a, another defenseman in St. John. I think he's a guy probably going to get drafted before a couple of uh, names potentially. Um, and then, you know, for me, one of my personal favorites, the hidden gem to me in this, this draft is Emil Andre, uh, small Swedish defenseman. Um, a lot of people think that he's going to go in the mid second round. I think someone's going after this guy in the first round because he's got kind of a Chris Letang appeal to him. Uh, and, uh, I, I think, you know, if a couple of the other guys go ahead, the, the maybe safer picks, someone's getting a real steal out of him. So, you know, names like that, uh, Brendan Brisson, another guy, I know there are teams that are super high on him and other teams that are, you know, if he falls to us, great. Um, he's looking more like an end of the first round, early second round guy, but he wouldn't shock me if somebody took him in, in the mid first round. So I think as much talent as there is at the top of this draft, uh, you're going to see some teams make some selections based on what they have in their prospect pools uh, that, you know, they, they really want a player of a certain mold to, to get into their system. And, you know, there are lots of teams that don't have the teams that have multiple first round picks, so they can, they can afford to gamble. And then there's mm-hmm. lots of teams that don't have those picks. So I think it'll be about as unpredictable of a draft as we've ever seen in terms of, uh, you know, coming, coming out of where guys slots, uh, just because of the fact that, you know, teams like the devils and the senators have multiple picks and, and are going to be able to do, are going to be able to take some risks. And that's what's going to make it fun to watch. That's for sure. Ross, as always, man, this has been a lot of fun for me. Uh, thanks for doing this, and uh, i got to call you more often. Absolutely. Nothing I like more than chatting prospects with you. It's always a blast. That's Ross McLean, man. That was a lot of fun. He always knocks it out of the park when he's on the show. I definitely have to find a way to have him on the program more often. Interested to hear your thoughts on those uh, various comparisons and debates and uh, I put it up on Twitter I broke down each one of them and put up a poll for each one I'll quickly go through that you can find this at TPS underscore ghee in the after I do an interview with with somebody I, I do the edit and I put it up on the Patreon page for the benefit of the patrons who pay two bucks a month they can have early access to all the interviews so in that thread on Twitter I put up the comparisons here's the results of the poll so far Cole Perfetti, 54.3% of the vote over Marco Rossi. Jack Quinn, a distant third in that grouping. Caden Gooley, 55.2% over Braden Schneider. And Justin Barron, a distant third. Hendricks Lapierre, with uh, two-thirds of the vote over Maverick Bork. Lucas Reichel, just edging J.J. Paterka. Anton Lundell gets 71% of the vote over Dylan Holloway. Lucas Raymond. So here's one that's different for uh, Ross, uh, Lucas Raymond, the pick over Alexander Holtz. The three Ontario guys, Jacob Perot, is the player singled out. 50% of the vote going to Perot. Tyson Forster next with uh, Jan Misak, the third pick there. Of the three WHLers, Jake Neighbors with 52.5% of the vote. Then Ridley, Greg, and Ozzie Weisblatt 
pretty even between those two. The three AJHL guys, Carter Savoy with 67%, then Michael Benning and uh, Ethan Edwards at 12.3%. The four goaltenders out of the dub, Dylan Garand at 64.7% of the vote. You can find that on Twitter at TPS underscore Guy. And with that, that wraps up this week's show. The NHL draft goes on Tuesday, Wednesday. I'll probably be tweeting uh, throughout the draft and putting up the links to the 2020 draft spotlight segments that those players did with me here on the program so that the new NHL fans can uh, easily access those interviews. Uh, Unfortunately, there were several players that I wanted to get on the show that I wasn't able to get. I don't know how much of that is pandemic-related, how much of it is just the extended offseason, and the amount of interview requests those players would have got because nothing else was happening. Uh, but unfortunate that I wasn't able to get to some players like Alexi Lafreniere and, and uh, Jack Quinn, for example, and uh, some of the guys out of the queue. Language is a bit of a barrier to do phone interviews with some players. I was told that was the case with uh, Maverick Bork. Uh, and I did try to get some of the uh, other Europeans that, that I wasn't able to track down. I, I did have Tim Stutzel, but I wasn't able to get either the other two high-end Germans and a couple of the Swedes, so uh, it was a challenging year in that regard. But uh, the draft is almost upon us, and I'm looking forward to that. And then I guess we can turn our focus to 2021. But let's enjoy the draft. That happens on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, Next week's show, probably have some fallout from the NHL draft, and keep tabs on what's happening in the queue, and with all the other leagues that are trying to get going. We'll do all of that next week. Until then, check out patreon.com slash the pipeline show. See if becoming a patron is a fit for you. And aside from that, be kind to each other, treat each other with respect, help out your neighbors when you can. If you got to go on grocery runs for them, do it. And uh, we'll get through the pandemic together. But until next week, my name is Keith Flaming. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See ya.